week 45 of the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. Hey, everybody. This week's show is brought to you by Warby Parker. Listeners to this podcast can get a special offer from Warby Parker when you go to warbyparkertrial.com slash Han. Lots going on. You know, I've been watching all of the fireworks from Rush Limbaugh in the days since it was announced that he has cancer. Yet, he's still on the radio, and he's still blasting hate. And we've got to talk about it. Let's start the show. We are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity. You and I, as citizens, have the obligation to shape the debates of our time, not only with the votes we cast, but with the voices we lift. The people are looking for honest answers, not easy answers. The very word secrecy is repugnant. Clear leadership. And we are, as a people, not false claims and evasiveness and politics as usual. Opposed to secret society. But ours was a nation of the battle, not the bullet. And a secret procedure. As a people, we cannot afford to let any group of citizens or any individual citizens live or labor under conditions which are injurious to the commonwealth. Black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American, young, old, gay, straight, men, women, folks with disabilities, all pledging allegiance under the same proud flag to this big, bold country that we love. That's what I see. That's the the America I know. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what is right with America. So I don't wish it on anybody. Cancer. I don't wish it on Rush Limbaugh. And I want to make that very clear right now. Um, I have family members who have suffered with cancer. I have had two family members. More than actually three. My grandfather died of lung cancer a long time ago. But my grandmother and my cousin recently. My cousin was only 36 years old. She died of cancer that had spread from her breast to her brain and It is a horrible thing to live through. And I don't wish that on anybody. I don't wish that on Rush Limbaugh at all. I I absolutely feel for him. And in that regard, as a human being, as a person on this planet, I, I, uh, I, I, I don't want to see people suffer. As much as I disagree with this guy and have disagreed with him and, and, you know, really have, uh, made a large part of my career before Trump was really you know, playing clips of Rush and arguing with those clips. I uh, I do don't do not think he gets a pass on this. I do not think he gets a pass on you know to say whatever he wants because he's dying of cancer, and and this is what has been thrown at me as I have been critical of some of the things he has said uh, on his air. Now, um, the guy decided to launch a homophobic attack on Pete Buttigieg. Now, you know, maybe that helps Pete Buttigieg because people are talking about Pete Buttigieg uh, in a law, in a lot of ways. But, you know, when, when a Rush Limbaugh, a guy who's been married four times, wants to talk about the sanctity of marriage, uh, I think you should all stand up and, and say, why don't we talk to the first three wives you had and how they feel about the sanctity, uh, your view on the sanctity of marriage? Because I, I'm not giving him a pass. I mean, this is a guy who abused drugs, and while he was abusing drugs, called for harsher penalties for people who were picked up on minor drug crimes. That's a fact. Look it up. 
And I I am not for higher penalties for people who uh, are using drugs, maybe people who are dealing drugs for sure. That's not where I'm coming from. I'm not saying Rush should have been punished for his drug addiction that he had. I'm saying he's a hypocrite for the way he talked about it. You know, one of the things I learned when my cousin was dying, and it really bothers me to this day, she was dying um, and she lived in New Jersey and New Jersey had medical marijuana. New York did not. And I'm a, you know, I'm a law-abiding citizen. And when she came to my house, she came out to my house and she was dying of cancer. And she wanted to light up a joint. And I didn't let her in my house. She had to go out to her car with my aunt and uh, light up the joint. And I regret that to this day. Now, I wouldn't have let her smoke in the house. I'm not a personal, you know, but maybe out on the porch or something. I, it's It's a... <sighs> We have to really rethink how we live in this country and what's important. And I don't know who the Democrats are going to nominate. I got Steve Israel, former chair of the DCCC on my show today. And we're going to talk about swing states and swing counties. It's a great interview. Stick around for it. I don't know if it's going to be Bernie or Biden or Buttigieg or whatever, but whoever it is, they've got to get real on uh, the way we deal with marijuana in this country, it's it's got to be legal. I I don't smoke it. I don't even drink. Um, I'm a runner. That's my thing. I'm addicted to running. Today was my 415th day in a row. Um, but it's not something people should ruin their lives over, and especially if people are sick. And this is making them be able to deal with that pain better, as it did my cousin. It allowed her to cope and allowed her to eat. Because, you know, cancer takes away, and chemo particularly, takes away your appetite. And I'm sure Rush is going to find this out. And I I feel bad for him in that regard. But I'm not letting things slide. I'm sorry. He's not going to have carte blanche because he's dying of cancer to spew hate. Not going to let it happen. None of us should let it happen. If he's healthy enough to go on the radio and question somebody's faith and, and judge people on how they love, then he's going to get attacked back for that. We're going to comment on that. So for all those people, you know, this is the thing about the right wing. You know, they only have outrage when it deals with them. You know, they're okay with people chanting four more years and and the president turning the State of the Union into a daytime talk show. Uh, but if the, but if the you know, it's, it's a complete outrage. For Nancy Pelosi to have ripped up the speech. It's completely out of line. It's completely inappropriate. It breaks decorum of, of the of the chamber. Are you kidding me? I mean, Rush Limbaugh gets to say whatever he wants. Because he's dying of cancer now. We can't be critical of Rush? No, I'm going to be critical of Rush. I'm going to point out the hypocrisies. Anybody who's buying that nonsense. That this guy is a Mahatma of morality. Talking about who should or should not be president based on who they love. When this is a guy who had four marriages. And three of them, presumably, and ended badly. Go talk to them. Go talk to the women who he was with. About how, you know, how much he respected the sanctity of marriage. If that's the plan here. I don't judge him for it. I really don't. I don't care. I could care less about his personal life, but he should care less about Pete Buttigieg's 
personal life. And I'm not endorsing Pete Buttigieg. Please don't write me and say, you said you weren't going to endorse, now you're talking. No, I'm endorsing the fact that people should be able to love whoever they want to love and nobody should be judged for it. I don't judge, I don't, I really don't judge Rush Limbaugh for any of his sins, his personal flaws, whether it be the oxy abuse, whether it be the four marriages. I don't judge him for that. I, I don't care. To me, that matters. First of all, he's a radio shock jock. He's an entertainer like me. He's not running for president. So why am I judging? I'm just saying, I'm pointing out that he's a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. And if he's going to go through this campaign, pointing out the flaws of progressives and ignoring the flaws of, you know, our president who has five children from three different wives and 25 women have, you know, non-disclosure agreements who he allegedly harassed. You know, if we want to talk about the sanctity of marriage, let's talk about the two porn stars who are on the record of having an affair with him during the marriage he's in right now. Let's talk about how in the 90s, there was, or maybe it was the 80s, I can't remember. It's such a blur. I think it was the 90s because I don't think I was paying that close attention in the 80s. Let's talk about how in the 90s, there was a woman who said Donald Trump was the best sex he ever had. And he was married to somebody else at the time that article came out. And let's also point out that Donald Trump probably got that story in the New York Post himself. So it's a, you know, it's a slippery slope when we start talking about morality. And, you know, I think Pete Buttigieg had a pretty good comeback on the Sunday shows over the weekend where he says, look, I'm, I'm in a faithful relationship with my husband and whatever. And, and, and if you're going to judge, look, quite frankly, anybody who judges Pete Buttigieg for his sexual orientation isn't voting for a Democrat anyway at this point. I mean, we know that there's one party uh, that welcomes bigots and it's not the Democratic Party. Okay, regardless of what the Republicans, they like to tweet out memes about how the Democratic Party fought against slavery in 1860. Yeah, different party, realignment, read some history, understand that in the 1960s, the liberal Republicans became Democrats and the conservative Democrats became Republicans. The party has realigned. The realignment has been complete now. It took a little while for that to kind of work its way out completely. But there are no more conservative Democrats and there are no more liberal Republicans. Jacob Javits from New York was a liberal Republican. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, Jacob Javits. Norman, you know, and Rockefeller. You know, they were, they were these kind of like liberal Republicans. That doesn't exist anymore in America. There are no conservative Democrats in America. Uh, Robert Byrd, I guess, was a conservative Democrat. I, I guess... You could say Joe Manchin's a conservative, but he's really a centrist. He just seems conservative next to the rest of the Democrats. You know, that brings me to my point, my other point. I was my, my first point was about Rush Limbaugh, but my main point that I want to get, get across to you, not just today, but every day, and I think I've been making this point both on my radio show and on this podcast, Democrats need to unify or they will not succeed. So whoever the nominee is, and I know it's getting heated between Bernie and uh, Bloomberg, frankly. Whoever the nominee is, their job one will be to unify the party. Before they start attacking Trump, before they go marching through the campaign season, they've got to figure out a way to get everybody in the tent. Because it's getting, look, it, 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 I'm surprised it took this long 
to get heated because it really hasn't been a heated primary season. It really hasn't. I mean, I think people behave pretty well. I think there's an understanding by the candidates, and I appreciate Bernie Sanders saying it on the stump time and time again, but there's an appreciation by the candidates that unification is, is vital. Vital. To, uh, to success in November. You know, you're hearing all these stories about who, you know, people might pick as a running mate. You hear Hillary Clinton. You hear, um, um, you know, some of uh, Bernie's more ardent supporters. But here's the thing. Don't, first of all, don't believe any of those stories right now. It's clickbait. People are making it up. I don't even believe that they have sources. I think people are speculating and they're creating sources. I'm calling you out on that, reporters, who have been writing about maybe Hillary Clinton will be Bloomberg's um, running mate. I don't know who you talked to that gave you that information. I know Bloomberg's got like 5,000 staffers now, so it could be somebody like who's running the Bloomberg campaign headquarters in Sheboygan. Okay, whatever. But honestly, if Bloomberg becomes the nominee, that running mate of his better be close to Bernie Sanders, if not Bernie Sanders, to get that wing of the party on board. Now, I know that only 25% of Bernie Sanders voters say that they won't vote for uh, anybody but Bernie. That's higher than anybody else. I think the average is about 10%. I discount that a little bit too. I say cut those numbers in half. That's still 12% of Bernie's 25% of the party. That's a lot. Um, depending on where that 25% is matters a lot. If that 25% is in Michigan, it matters a whole lot more than if it's in New York or California. But there needs to be some unification of the party. I mean, if Bloomberg or Biden or Buttigieg is the, or, or, or Amy Klobuchar, who's coming on strong, happens to have a good week, and you know this is the week they, they need to have a good week, then there's going to be a need, there's going to be an absolute need for them to reach out to the Bernie wing. And the Bernie wing is going to have to swallow whatever pride they have in this uh, running mate pick situation. They're going to have to pick a running mate that's from the centrist wing of the party. Pick Joe Manchin, Bernie. I mean, you're going to have to do something to unite the party. So, um, you know, forget about this purity ticket with this purity test. You know, we hear about all these purity tests in in the party. You know, everybody's got their purity test for their candidate. Right now is the time to have your intramural fights. Once this primary is over, once the candidate is picked, and it might not be till Milwaukee, once that happens, that's it. It's over. You you salute whoever that candidate is and you go out and you work for him. Otherwise, we're going to have four more years of Donald Trump. And that's what he wants. Every time there's an appeared slight to Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump puts it up on the web. He tries to stoke the hate within the party. United, we stand, baby. Divided, we will be defeated. You can't let that happen. It's too important of an election. Very much too important. I mean, today... You know, it's President's Week, and um, I try to think about George Washington. Um, If you haven't seen Hamilton, by the way, go see it or download the the soundtrack. It's awesome. But you think about this, and and this is not the only way I know George Washington. I was a history minor in college. I've read many books on George Washington, but you think about George Washington. George Washington could have been king. They wanted to make him king. Um, he said, no, I want to be president. I want to be president of these United States. I want to see this grand experiment play out. I want to help it 
grow. He defined what the presidency will be. And one of the things he defined was that the power of the president is limited and finite, frankly, by leaving. And now we have this guy who's tweeting out over the weekend that uh, if you go for, if you take a shot, I'm paraphrasing, if you take a shot at the king, you better kill the king, which is, you know, something you say all the time. People say it all the time, right? Um, I don't know. He also loves to tweet out the uh, the meme with his signs, Trump 2020, Trump 2024, which we all know can't happen, right? Because of the Constitution. You know, this little pesky thing called the Constitution that the Federalist Society believes they want a strict interpretation of. Let's see how they bend themselves. Into, if Donald Trump wins the presidency again, let's see them bend themselves into pretzels in four years to show, oh no, the Constitution didn't really mean when they passed the 25th Amendment that the president only gets two terms. They didn't believe that. I mean, I'll be real excited to see Neil Gorsuch and Brent Kavanaugh you know, all these other Federalist Society types who I debate on Fox trying to explain how it's okay, even though the 25th Amendment just by reading it, says the president shall be limited to two terms. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Done. Over. Let's see. Let's see what happens. Let's see how they do this, right? Let's see how they twist themselves into a pretzel to make Donald Trump uh, a nominee in 2024. Oh, let's hope it doesn't come to that. Let's hope we beat him this time. And the only way we're going to beat him this time is at the end of this, we all unite behind whoever it is. That's why, by the way, one of the reasons why I'm not endorsing a candidate right now, and I won't, is because I want to be involved with the reunification of the party at the end of it. I, I mean, I have people who I like better than others, but I don't dislike any of them, and I, I am not of the belief that that none of them... I, I'm not of this electability myth. You know, people. some people say Bernie can't win, right? I... I've said this before. I'll say it again. They're going to call whoever the nominee is, even if it's Mike Bloomberg, a socialist. They will call us socialists. That's their plan this year. So who cares? <laughs> right? Who cares? Okay, he's a socialist. Next. We're all socialists, right? Everybody. Republicans are socialists. They, they're socialists for letting farmers get subsidies. I think that's communist, frankly, which is worse. I mean, those farm subsidies, what is that? Is that capitalism at its best? Bank bailouts? Capitalism? How about the, uh, how, you know, how about the, 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 the serious tax breaks we give oil companies and big corporations like Amazon? I mean, is that, is that capitalism? There's a little bit of socialism in everything. People just don't like, so, the only thing that's socialism is giving people free health care in America. That's socialism. That's the, that's the socialism they're worried about. Now, no, let's give farmers $15 billion uh, to, because the president made a bad deal with China. No, that's not socialism. That's not communism. That's not right out of the Stalin playbook. No, that's good. No, that's good, right? Now, see, this is the thing about conservatives. Everything that they want is good, and everything that Democrats want are bad, even if it's the same thing at different times because they're hypocrites, and they suck, We've got to fight against it. So do I think that Bernie's unelectable? No, I don't. In fact, he's got an army. And maybe you need an army to beat an army. Do I think that Klobuchar is unelectable? No, I think she could win. Quite frankly, anybody who could unite the party can win. Period. And people who do not unite the party will lose. And Bernie's been out there at least saying it. Now, his people have not taken that to heart. There's been a lot of nonsense out there, particularly... 
on the internet by the Bernie groups. I won't call them Bernie bros because I'm sure they're not all men. There's been a lot of stuff out there that needs to calm down right now. And Bernie needs to lead, right? I I hear him saying it. He needs to lead. He's got a, a huge staff. He's got tons of resources. He needs to lead and get his people to back off. What they were doing to the culinary union in Nevada, quite frankly, was out of line. They pointed out what his proposal would do to their health care plan. I think that's not that's not a negative attack on Bernie Sanders, but there was nothing but nonsense after that from the Bernie, you know, not Bernie himself, not from his team, but from some rabid supporters. So I expect him to lead. And I and that goes for anyone who have supporters who are out there you know, being completely inappropriate towards other candidates and towards other groups that are important to the Democratic coalition. Uniting the party is more important than who's at the top of the ticket, period. It doesn't matter, in my opinion. I think Trump's eminently beatable if Democrats unite behind a candidate. Whoever is the candidate will win if there's unity. I got a great show, a great guest coming up, Steve Israel. Um, He has campaigned all over the country. He was the chair of the DSC, excuse me, the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and a former congressman from the great state of New York. Guy I've known a long, long time. I knew him before he was a congressman, before I worked for Chuck Schumer. Um, We both ran for the same uh, county legislative seat. I, I ran about eight years after he did, or 10 years after he did, and right when I got out of college. But he had wrote a paper on how to beat... Uh, how to win this district. And it was it was pretty interesting. I read it and uh, we came close. Both of us came close to winning. He actually moved to Huntington, got elected to the Huntington Town Council and eventually became a congressman uh, from that area. Uh, he served for 16 years in Congress. And uh, now he is uh, heading a uh, an institute at Cornell University. Very interesting guy. Stick around for that conversation. And, you know, don't forget, if you need eyeglasses, you shouldn't be paying more than your iPhone, right? You you want to get quality frames. You want to get uh, stylish things. And you want to be able to try it out and see how they look with your wardrobe, not just what you're wearing when you go to the store that day. What if you're in sweatpants? You just came from the gym. You're going to the store. I got time. I'm going to go to the, the eyeglass store. I'm going to try, try out some frames. You try out some frames that look good with your gym workout clothes, but you wear a suit to work every day. That's why you got to try out WarbyParker.com. Go to WarbyParkerTrial.com slash Han. And get five pairs for five days, no obligation. Okay? You don't like them, you send them back. $95 a pair. And I'm talking with prescriptions, America. $95 a pair with prescriptions. You don't want to miss this offer. WarbyParkerTrial.com slash Han. You're going to love these eyeglasses. You're going to be able to take them home. You're going to be able to try them out with the clothes that you wear every single day. Five pairs. Have your wife check them out, your significant other, your friends, your coworkers. Ask them for their opinions. Look in different types of mirrors so you're not just using a, a flattering mirror at some eyeglass store. WarbyParkerTrial.com slash Han. WarbyParkerTrial.com slash Han for this special offer. Get five pairs for five days with no obligation whatsoever. You don't like them, you send them back. Here's another good thing about this company. Every pair of glasses you buy, they donate a pair of glasses to people in need. And let me tell you something. You don't want to be out there trying to get ahead in this world without being able to see. So that's very important to me. WarbyParkerTrial.com slash on. All right. 
I'll be right back with Congressman Steve Vision. Stay where you're at. Hey, America, Christopher Hahn here, the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. What is with the president and the right-wing echo chamber encouraging these astroturf protests against stay-at-home orders around the country? It's ridiculous, and it needs to stop. Check out the Aggressive Progressive Podcast wherever you download podcasts. I'm Royal Oaks. Next time on Too Many Lawyers, COVID continues to reshape the law. Supreme Court arguments will be held by teleconference. The justices won't even know if the lawyers are wearing pants, which is fair given the eternal mystery of what's under those black robes. Los Angeles County is springing 25% of its inmates. The sheriff suggests folks get ready for what might be a spike in crime. Check it all out on the next episode of Too Many Lawyers. Joining me now, he is the former chairman of the DCCC and a former congressman from the great state of New York. Happy to have him as my first guest as we move into the Midwest swing states of Wisconsin, or swing state of Wisconsin. Former Congressman Steve Israel, how you doing? I am great, Chris. Great to do your show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you here because, you know, you've been all over this country getting Democrats elected, both when you were chairman of the DCCC and even now. uh, And I've been enjoying watching you on MSNBC. You've been getting a lot of getting a lot of play lately. Chris Matthews really likes you. So (laughs) you've been doing a lot on his show and and, uh, I see it a lot. So I just want to get your take on on the national picture here as you see it. I mean, we, we, we're we in the middle of this primary, not in the middle, we're at the very beginning of the primary season for president. Yeah. And of course, it is incumbent on the uh, Democrats to win back the Senate and hold the House. And I'd just like to get your opening thoughts on, on 2020. Sure. Uh, look, I think uh, it, it all boils down to three things. Number one... Eighty percent of the electorate has has made a judgment on who they're going to vote for. So this election is cooked and over with eighty percent of the election. That leaves twenty percent that's still undecided, and that twenty percent really counts the most in seven battleground states. So we don't have a national election for president right. anymore, Chris. We have seven state elections, right. Wisconsin happens to be one of them, uh, and I'm, I'm so pleased uh, to be debuting your show in uh, in Wisconsin. I, my first guest in Wisconsin. I wanted a big one. I wanted somebody who knew the entire country, and that's why I begged you to come on. Well, you didn't have to beg. You had me at hello. Um, <laughs> and the, and the third thing is within those seven battleground states. If you really look at it. If you're really pathetic like me and you have all the time in the world to analyze county voting performance, yep. there are about 20 to 30 swing counties that really mm. matter. One of those counties, by the way, is Kenosha uh, in, in Wisconsin. Yep, big time. So talking Kenosha, Erie, Pennsylvania, Luzerne, Lackawanna, Pennsylvania, uh, Maricopa County, Arizona, Pinellas in Florida. So it all boils down to this. Whoever can win... Uh, a uh, preponderance of those seven battleground states uh, and a preponderance of those 20 to 30 counties and a preponderance of the 20% of the undecided electorate yep. will win the presidency. Yeah, it, it's just that simple, right? And you yeah. and I got our start in county politics. In fact, we both ran for the same county legislative seat uh, in That's Suffolk right. County. Uh, yeah, and, not, and we lived to tell the tale. We did. It was a very Republican <laughs> seat at uh, seat, and at the time, Suffolk County was a very Republican county until people yeah. like you started running for Congress and winning. Yeah. So uh, it was uh, a long time ago. We didn't run against each other, America. No, we ran. No. I ran ten years after you did, but I read your thesis on how to win it, which yeah. is why when you, they made you the chair of the DCCC, I go, Steve Israel's the guy 
who figures out how to win in hard places. And 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 you did. And and now the Democrats are still running your game plan across the county, oh, uh, country, country. Uh, do you see them looking in certain places for more seats to add to their majority? Or you think this is just a defensive year? for them? Oh, I think it's mostly a defensive year. I mean, there are 30 districts that House Democrats hold uh, that actually uh, supported Donald Trump. So uh, Donald Trump won 30 districts that are now held by uh, incumbent Democrats. The Democrats flipped about 40 seats. Uh, so the, the priority for House Democrats' job one is defense. They've right. got to defend those frontliners. Maybe, by the way, there are three districts that uh, have Republican incumbents that voted for Hillary Clinton. Right. Maybe they can pick up uh, one or two of those three, but I think the Democrats realize that they've got to defend their, uh, their incumbents in those really tough uh, Trump districts. Anybody you think that's particularly vulnerable this year? Oh gosh, you know it is so. This is the most uh, volatile and uncertain and fluid election that I can remember. Um, so um, yeah, there's a ton of. Well, I shouldn't say a ton, but there's a you know quite a number of of folks who are really vulnerable in those districts. Uh, you know where Trump uh, where Trump did well. Um, the bottom line is I mean, my advice to. Uh, Democrats who, from time to time, uh, call, uh, is you can't take anything for granted right. in this environment. No matter how safe you feel, yeah. you're not that safe. And by the way, no matter how vulnerable you feel, you may not be that vulnerable. So, you know, just do do the mechanics, and you know those mechanics. Yep. You know, just knock on your doors and raise the money that you need uh, for your media buys. Um, and if you are in one of those swing districts, Talk about issues that really resonate. So my theory is the, the way that Democrats will, will beat the Donald Trump uh, and hold uh, their uh, majority in the House is not to make this election just a referendum on Donald Trump, but to talk about health care. Talk about the fact that this is a president who wanted to take away people's protections for pre-existing yeah. conditions. Those issues cut across different demographics. And if you're talking about that issue, you're in good shape. Yeah. I you know, I am I'm starting to believe that this year's election is going to be less about issues and more about who gets their people out to vote. Yeah. You know, I I've been reading, you know, there are certain political theorists that believe that turnout is the key to victory in a presidential year and that this is a year whoever's base is most motivated is going to come out. And I I see that the Republicans kind of believe that too because they're spending all of their energy trying to divide democrats across the country i don't know if you're sensing that as well no you're absolutely right this is going to be a turnout election uh so one of my uh close friends uh, is reince Priebus, another wisconsin guy yep. who was the head of the uh republican national committee was uh, president trump's chief of staff he and i uh do a lot of uh, bipartisan stuff together uh, believe it or not yep. and i can tell you that you know reince and others um, they believe this is going to be a base versus base yeah. uh, election, um, and that explains why President Trump just doubles down and triples down and quadruples down on his base. Do you believe his base is bigger than the Democratic base if they come out and vote? No, I actually think that uh, you know both bases are roughly approximate. I think you know Charlie Cook and the Cook Political yep. Report, right? I mean, that guy is just the guru of politics. Uh, he's the guy I listen to the most. So his theory is that in this election, maybe 35 to 40 percent are unmalleable Trump supporters. These are the people Trump had in mind. Yep. He said, I can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue yep. and not lose votes. Maybe 40 to 45 percent uh, are unmalleable 
uh, voters for anybody but Trump, including a yep. glass of water. Get him out. Who's running. <laughs> right. <laughs> just, just get him out. And that leaves, you know, approximately 20% or so undecided. So I think both bases are in proximity to one another. And my view is this election is going to be won in, on two fronts. Can, can Democrats turn their base out, but at the same time, can they win Kenosha County? Can so, they win those crossover voters? So in, in, in that scenario, you believe that the candidate matters a lot. I do. Uh, and and what type of candidate do you think is the one that could win Kenosha County? Well, here's where the aggressive progressive may uh, <laughs> may not agree with me. Um, I think it's actually a, a moderate candidate. I mean, if you take a look at Kenosha, uh, Barack Obama won Kenosha County twice. Uh, again, this is uh, outside of Milwaukee. Right. Uh, he won it twice, 2008, 2012, and then Donald Trump won it by 1%. And that 1% margin gave him the state of Wisconsin amazing. electoral college, and that's what put him in the presidency. So I think a Democrat, the Democrats need to field a, a fairly moderate uh, candidate who can appeal to those swing voters uh, in places like Kenosha. Well, I'm an aggressive progressive who wants to win. Yeah, I don't. I, like I don't. That, I, I that like is that. my whole. My theory is winning, and then we can fight about all our other internal stuff after we win, right? Yeah. I want yeah. all the all of these. You know, oh, I'm not going to vote for anybody but Bernie, or oh, I'm not going to vote yeah. for anybody but a moderate. I'm I'm not for that. I think unity. Quite frankly, I think unity of the party is more important than who's at the top of the ticket in a lot of ways. Cause I do yeah. think that there's fewer and fewer people that are going to be swing voters in this election. All right, Steve, stay right. Congressman, sorry, stay right there. I'm going to take a quick break, pay some bills. I'm going to come right back. All right. You don't need to listen to the break. Here's part two of my interview with former Congressman and former head of the DCCC, Steve Israel. But I'm back with Congressman, former Congressman, Steve Israel, who is also currently uh, the executive director of Cornell University's Institute of Public Policy and Global Affairs. I think I got that wrong. Uh, Institute of Politics and Global Affairs. Po- we were very close. Politics and Global Affairs. Yes, at which, Cornell University. Which, you know, I mean, Cornell University, uh, you can't beat it. Ivy League. Yeah. Uh, you've been bringing some big-time people there. Are, I, I know you had chairmanship there a couple of weeks ago. I wanted to go, uh, but I couldn't. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, what's going on with that? So, you know, I left Congress after uh, 16 years, uh, undefeated and unindicted, which is a triumph. These awesome, days. especially when you're, when you're the guy in charge of getting people elected and raising That's money. Right. <laughs> so. uh, and, I, you know, I wanted to, to try and deepen the discourse and, and raise understanding uh, on, on these volatile issues that we're confronted with, and historically volatile issues. Right. Uh, and so Cornell gave me a, a wonderful platform. We're based in New York City. And we bring in folks like Nancy Pelosi. Uh, just a few weeks after she became Speaker of the House, she was with us. But I also brought in Reince Priebus because I want people to understand, you know, what's going on in the White House. I think we owe ourselves at least whatever explanation can, can be offered. Uh, Adam Schiff comes uh, at, least, uh, uh, at least once every three or four months and uh, just had Chris Matthews uh, talking about what happens inside punditry. Yep. Uh, so we, we just do these really interesting programs to, to understand the, the dynamics uh, of, of politics and policy in, uh, in this environment. Well, that's awesome. That's really awesome. Let, let's talk about Nancy Pelosi because you worked very sure. closely with her uh, when you were head of the DCCC. Uh, I mean, to me, she appears to be a political mastermind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I haven't been uh, beneath, you know, I haven't been on the other side of the curtain like you have. Yeah. And I'd just like to get your impressions of her having worked so closely with her. Uh, I have never met anybody 
who is as brilliant at politics, as shrewd, who can think four and five dimensionally, see around corners, and do it because it's the right thing to do, uh, as I have with Nancy Pelosi. I call her Tuscanini conducting a, 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 a jazz fusion orchestra. The Democratic Caucus is a caucus of caucuses. Yeah. So there's like, you know, every possible ideology and interest is represented in the Democratic Caucus, and she finds a way to unite that caucus, hold it together. And finally, what, what drives her uh, in every meeting I've had with her, and I, I would have three or four a day sometimes, uh, every decision came down to, how is this going to help the one in seven children born into hunger in America? Man. That's what drives her. That is awesome. That mm-hmm. is awesome. I mean, I, 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 I don't understand why the Republicans try to mess with her. I mean, she's, this is a woman who has had every single dollar Republicans have spent, like I would say 70 cents of it, went to attack ads with her in it for yeah. a period of time. And yet it seems to me that she comes out on top. I mean, she wins with, I, 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 I think she's only the second person to be speaker twice. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and that in and of itself is amazing. She's the first female, obviously, right. to be speaker. Um, what? How do you think, you know, like she grew up in this rough and tumble Baltimore political system right. and then moved out to California. Um, you know, what makes her tick in that yeah. regard? So first, uh, it, it's that passion uh, for solving people's problems and particularly for children. Secondly, um, she... She owns the street. She knows what you have to do on the streets to right. win. Uh, and even as Speaker of the House, she understands what's going to be happening on the streets of Kenosha and what's going to ha- be happening on the streets of Suffolk County on Long Island. Right, right. So she owns the street. She understands turnout. Uh, and then she is just this masterful consensus builder. Um, you know, she could process 15 competing arguments around her conference table uh, and figure out how to synthesize them into one united consensus view for Democrats. Those are three qualities that I've not seen in anybody else. I'll t- can I just say one other thing on this? Yep. Joe Kennedy, uh, former colleague of mine who's now running for the U.S. Senate in Massachusetts, actually primarying Ed Markey, tells this story that when he first got elected, he, he wanted to develop relationships with Republicans. So he would visit Republican members of Congress and senior Republicans, and he went into one Republican's office, and uh, Pelosi was on the television uh, that, that was on in the office, and the Republican said to Joe, here's the difference between our leadership and your leadership, Joe. Nancy Pelosi gets things done because she's animated by issues. She, she uses power to improve people's lives. Our leadership, this Republican said, we use power to be in power. Yeah. And there's a big difference between the two. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought her, I thought her tearing up the script, uh, tearing up uh, Trump's speech yeah. uh, last week, I thought it was masterful because we weren't talking about the 35 lies that he did yeah. after that speech. I was on after the speech that night. I'm sure mm-hmm. you were as well somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have one conversation about the speech. It was all about her. About right. And well, if, she doesn't know how to steal the narrative. Yeah, she sure. stole the narrative from a guy who's very good at stealing the narrative, the yeah. president. I don't underestimate him in that as well. But she stole, yeah. the, stole the narrative just by tearing up the speech, made it about her. Then we didn't have to talk about how everything he said was lies, which then furthers the lies, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, we got other people, oh, he's not lying. You know, we didn't have that debate. We had yeah. the debate about was it right or wrong for her to do it. Well, we, she tore up the script because it was a bunch of lies. So right. now we're just talking about the mass lying that he did. What did you make of that? I mean, uh, you know, the, the State of the Union, you've been in that room for the State of the yeah. Union for, for three presidents, 
right? No. For uh, Bush, Obama, and I well, guess no, no. just uh, t- uh, states of the union uh, under Bush and Obama. Oh, two so, presidents. Yeah, yeah, I went through uh, quite a few of those, but under the two presidents. Right. So, I mean, I've never seen a state of the union like that where mm-hmm. it was like a game show. Guys, you know, you get a call. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, it was, you know, for them to start chanting four more years. Crazy. So, like, can we... Can we just dispense with the State of the Union? It's not the State of the Union. It's a, just a long campaign commercial, so we ought to just stop that. I, I think she the... should have just said, send me the speech, sir. You don't yeah, get to give it. Which, which is what happened before Woodrow Wilson decided that he wanted to actually go up to the Hill yeah. as president and give a State of the Union. We, it, it's, these things are, or this particular thing is just a, a giant campaign rally uh, and does no service to the American people. Has there been any talk about maybe not having a State of the Union in the future? Uh, there's been a little bit of talk, but, you know, Washington, as you well know, because you worked so well for Senator Schumer, is a very traditional and institutional place. Yeah. Uh, and so that's one uh, kind of legacy of our history that I don't think is going to go. I don't know. I feel like the tr- tradition is dead. All right, Steve, I got like 20 seconds left with you. This went really well. I really appreciate it. Where do you want people to know about you? Where can they find you? Well, they can... Uh Go to the Cornell uh, website. It's www.iopga uh, at cornell.edu. Excellent, excellent. And you're a, uh, at Steve Israel on Twitter. Yes, I at, thank you. At Rep Steve Israel. At Rep Steve Israel hey, on Twitter. And I'm <laughs> at Christopher Hahn on Twitter, and I'll be adding him later on so you all know who he is. Perfect. Congressman, I truly appreciate you coming on. I truly appreciate everything you've done for this country. Keep up the good work. Congratulations on the show. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview. You know, Steve knows a lot about how elections work across this country, having headed up the DCCC. I think he was there for six years heading that. That's a big job, big task. Saw a lot of election victories, saw some defeats, knows what's going on, knows how elections won. He's a smart guy to begin with, so given that experience uh, makes him invaluable. I really do appreciate him getting on the show. Uh, but, you know, what he said is right. It's going to boil down to, you know, a couple handfuls of counties across this country in about six or seven or eight states. And that's it. And, uh, you know, if we're sitting at home because we didn't like the person they picked, oh, no, I'm going to stay home. I'm not getting everything I want. You're going to get Donald Trump again. Right. If you don't get everything you want and you go home and pout, you get Donald Trump again. And you don't want that. Nobody wants that. So Nevada's coming up this weekend. It's another caucus. I hate caucuses. I think it's time to do away with caucuses. I know Nevada has done a lot to try to make it more accessible by allowing early voting, which seems to have gone smoothly, although there were, you know, two to three hour lines. They're expecting significant turnout at these caucuses next week. I hope they're prepared. Because we don't need another Iowa situation. I'm done with caucuses, though, by the way. I think this is it. I think we should never have a caucus again. Nevada, you know, you could go third if you want, but you got to vote. Like, you know, you got to vote. You got to have a state-run primary. Figure it out. Um, we can't have these caucuses anymore. This is just, it's too, it's too aggravating. There's too much uncertainty. It, it, it disqualifies too many people who can't get there. You're disenfranchised because you've got to work. You're disenfranchised because you might show up late. It, there's, there's, there's no need for this anymore in the modern era. I mean, let's have ballots by mail. Let's figure this out. Let's, let's stop with the nonsense. Elections need to run smoothly, and people need to have every opportunity to vote. 
And that doesn't just go for primaries and caucuses, America. Republicans are going to try to disenfranchise millions of voters across this country. They're going to do everything they can to stand in the way of people who they think won't vote with them. They can't win on the field of ideas, so they try to change the field. And it is time for that nonsense to be called out. I'm really excited about the work Tracy Abrams is doing across the country. I've been trying to get her on. Stacey Abrams, I'm sorry. Uh, I've been trying to get her on this program, and I will at some point. Um, She's doing great work across this country. I think it's as important as the campaigns. Because if you could really, honestly, if you could make sure there aren't roadblocks in places like Georgia and Texas, I mean, how great would it be if Texas went blue? When Texas goes blue, and it will go blue, I don't know if it's going to be this year, but it's going blue soon. It's The demographics are destiny, but the problem is Republicans want to hold on to that power. And what are they going to do to hold on to that power? They're going to put roadblocks in the path of people who they think won't vote with them. And there's a lot of that going on in Texas. They make it very hard to register to vote in Texas. They make it very hard to vote in Texas. So we got to do everything we can to push back on that across this country because when Texas goes blue, we're having a whole different conversation about this country, not just because of you know, the presidency. Think about the House of Representatives. If Texas state legislature becomes blue and they get to cut the lines, oh, what a difference. What a difference, America. Austin's a really liberal city, and it's got five separate members of Congress, all Republicans, because they chopped that city up so that the Democrats can't even have those seats. Sad. Really sad. Time for that to change. All right, time for me to remind you, as always, to seek the truth. Question everyone and everything, America, even me. Seek the truth. I know it's out there, and I know you'll find it if you look hard for it. I'm Chris Hahn. Thanks for listening to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast.